Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to delve into the different physician branches or specialties. Just to start off with, what is a physician? Most people know what a GP is and what a surgeon is, but not everyone knows exactly what a physician does. Well, the formal description is specialists in internal medicine, so diseases and complaints that happen inside your body. And even if that sounds unfamiliar, you've almost certainly heard of a lot of the areas that this covers, like cardiology, diabetes, allergies, palliative care, infectious disease, and neurology. These are all branches of medicine or specialties that physicians are responsible for. In each coming episode of Case Notes, we will pick one of these specialties and delve into its history, looking at its development over hundreds of years and some of the interesting stories and cases from the past. We'll also talk to a current physician working in that area to find out what it is like to be working as a specialist physician in the 21st century. This episode of Case Notes will uncover the history of gastroenterology. This is a very broad topic, covering food, diet, and many very common digestive diseases. We're only going to have time to look at a few of these, so this is just a snapshot. Then we'll talk to Dr. Shahida Din and Dr. Alan Shand, specialists currently working in the field of gastroenterology. In the modern day, nutrition and pharmacology are seen as very different subjects. The medicine we take is separate and distinct from the food which we eat. In the past, this line was much more blurred. A doctor would prescribe almonds, garlic, bacon, turnips and cheese to their patient. A sick person would self-dose with the plants that grew in their garden or rub butter and milk on their skin to treat a rash. From ancient Greece to the 1800s, much of medical practice was based around humoral theory. According to this idea, there were four humours, or fluids, in the body, which needed to be kept in balance. These were black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. The balance of these humours was tied to a person's diet, their age, and their gender. Foods were categorised according to the impact they had on their body's humours. Cucumbers and pork caused phlegm because they were seen as cold and moist, while vinegar and lemons increased black bile because they were seen as cold and dry. A patient could be prescribed lamb or onions by their doctor to cure their complaint, as much as they might be prescribed a tincture, lotion or pill. Changes in medical theory began with the scientific revolution in the mid-1600s. Scientists and physicians began to move away from the idea of the humoral diet. Many ordinary people continued to think of food in a humoral way into the 1800s, and the saying, feed a cold, starve a fever, stems from these earlier humoral principles. The origins of evacuatory medicine lie with the humoral system. When a person's humours became imbalanced, this needed to be corrected by removing the bad humours from their body. Sometimes this was done through bloodletting, but more often through ingesting emetics for vomiting, diuretics or laxatives. Sweating and blistering the skin were also thought to help remove toxins from the body. Heroic medicine, popular in the 1700s and 1800s, was based on the idea that the more you evacuated and the closer to death you came, 
the more successful the treatment must be. When the English physician John Woodward wrote a medical study in 1718, he opened with, The beginnings of all things, good or bad, to the body, are in the stomach. The stomach, then, was at the centre of medical treatment and believed to be the central root of disease. Intestinal problems, both constipation and diarrhoea, were frequent complaints. Lack of access to fresh fruit and vegetables and an offal and starch-heavy diet meant gastric complaints were commonplace, especially amongst the poor. Trying to understand the history of gastrointestinal complaints in the 17th and 18th centuries is complicated. They used the term cholera, but it had an entirely different meaning to what we know cholera as today. It was not an infectious disease, but rather a stomach complaint. The historian Norman Howard Jones said that the term cholera was a blunderbuss epithet, applied in a wide range of instances where individuals experienced diarrhea or cramps. The word dysentery, similarly, was used for all sorts of complaints involving diarrhea, and the term dyspepsia, also known as indigestion, was seen as a nervous disease as well as an intestinal one. It was a symptom of hysteria and other disorders of the nerves. The use of colic as a term has a similar history. Now a term primarily associated with infants, in the 17th and 18th centuries it was more often a complaint of adults. The identified causes of colic varied between doctors, though diet and extremes of temperature were often considered to be key factors. In one case, the military physician Sir John Pringle, who wrote extensively on the subject of epidemic and digestive complaints, analysed the causes of colic pain of his wife's maid. These had been brought about, according to Pringle, by the maid becoming overheated during her work and then drinking a glass of beer. Most of the time when it looks like instances of cholera, dysentery, indigestion or colic were going up or down, it doesn't really show anything about how common these diseases were. It just shows the changing use of medical terms. One doctor might call a disease cholera, another dysentery, but they could have been exactly the same disease. By contrast, intestinal worms should, in theory, have been one of the simplest of the digestive complaints to diagnose. Unlike diseases such as cholera and colic, there was one very clear and distinctive symptom, the expelling of worms or worm fragments from the anus. Unfortunately, diagnosis was not always so simple. At a time when physical examination of patients was limited, particularly in diseases which affected areas like the rectum, the focus instead was on the study of the worms themselves. Physicians frequently emphasised the sheer scale of the creatures, one study describing them as sometimes measuring, quote, seven or eight foot long, sometimes 19, 23, 30, 45 foot. Worms, then, could take on horrifying forms. Domestic treatments for removing or preventing worms, however, were widely available, and, according to the Scottish physician William Buchan's book, Domestic Medicine, included a glass of red wine, as well as a wide range of laxatives. Folk remedies were often also used, including eating large quantities of garlic. Other treatments were a bit more unsavoury. In 1776, the Swedish physician Nils von Rosenstein recommended tempting the worms out with a piece of pork attached to string, which was inserted into the anus, as well as enemas, the ingredients of which included rat's dung. Enemas were a frequent treatment for intestinal worms, and, as well as dung, could contain tobacco smoke and lime water. The aim of this treatment was to poison the worms, thereby forcing them to release their grip on the intestinal wall, before laxatives were then employed to flush the worms out of the patient's body.
So welcome to the podcast today. We have Dr. Shahida Din and Dr. Alan Shand. So um, I just wonder if we could start off before we get into the details, just finding out a little bit about who you are. So Shahida, do you want to start? Yeah, hi, thank you. Um, I'm Shahida Din, a consultant gastroenterologist who specialises in the treatment and researching of inflammatory bowel disease at the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh. Thank you. And Alan, can you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my name's Alan Shand. I'm a consultant gastroenterologist at the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh. Um, I look after people with inflammatory bowel disease and uh, people with nutritional problems. Thank you. So I'm going to start with a bit of a horrible question, which is, what is gastroenterology? What is a nice, easy summary that encapsulates absolutely everything that you do, you know, in, in sort of, you know, 20 words or less? No, but just, just some sort of overview of, of what your work is, what it's all about. Um, Shahida? Yeah, so I think 20 words is really tight, but I'll try. Um, gastroenterology is the management of diseases and symptoms related to the gut and the associated organs, including the liver, pancreas, gallbladder, and bile ducts. And I think that covers it, hopefully. So, I, Alan, is that very uncontentious? You're happy with that as a definition? I think that's an excellent answer. The, the only thing I would add is that we also look after people who have some of the consequences of these diseases. And uh, again, that's, that's often uh, undernutrition or nutritional uh, failure uh, or intestinal failure. So I, I would add those things to, to that definition. It's another 20 words, sorry. I'll, I'll allow it. Um, I'm also interested to know, you know, what have you seen over the course of your careers thus far? So I'm thinking about, you know, historical kind of changing, defining moments in gastroenterology, you know, innovations, developments, or even just sort of individual patient cases that have really stuck with you, obviously avoiding any data protection, naming of people sort of stuff. But yeah, what, what sort of pivotal moments or important moments have stuck with you from your career? I will start with you, Alan, because I, I mean, I don't want to say this in a way that sounds rude, but you've had slightly more time. <laughs> That's a very nice way of putting it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, we, we were talking about this before and um, it, it's actually very difficult to pin down a, a single um, pivotal moment uh, because there have been so many. Um, that, that, I mean, the invention of endoscopy and the development of endoscopy predated me starting um, things like um, uh, uh, pediatricians in, uh, in, in Holland, in the Netherlands, uh, at the, during the end of the Second World War, figuring out that uh, uh, those children with celiac disease, uh, whom they'd seen get so much better uh, during the war when everyone else was starving, um, suddenly getting worse again when uh, the supplies of bread and, and um, gluten-containing foods uh, returned to the general population. Uh, so pinning down the, uh, the, the, the precise trigger, gluten as a, a cause of, uh, of celiac disease, that's a pretty pivotal moment. Um, and much more up to date. So kind of when, when I graduated, it was round about the time of the first small bowel transplant. Um, so transplantation medicine has, has changed hugely. And as it pertains to gastroenterology, I mean, I mentioned small bowel transplant, but preceding that was, was liver transplantation. And now we have multi-organ, uh, multivisceral transplantation. Um, also, kind of early to uh, uh, mid-90s, there was the, the, the discovery of the role of H. pylori in, uh, in peptic ulcer disease. Um, 
which has changed the, the management of peptic ulcer disease from being something that was um, very frequently uh, treated by surgery uh, to something now that's treated with uh, a handful of, uh, of pills each day for a week. Um, so uh, recognizing that uh, the, the root cause of the problem was a bacterium um, made, made an enormous difference uh, worldwide. Um, and probably most up to date, um, I think the, uh, the, the development of uh, very effective antiviral treatments uh, for hepatitis C, such that you know, there's a, a real, a real uh, uh, potential that hepatitis C could be, could be wiped out completely and certainly can now be cured. And when I started, um, hepatitis C, well, actually hepatitis C didn't even have a name, but um, it, it was uh, a, a disease that, that had ran an inexorable course. So uh, I, I think there are all sorts of things. I'm sure Shahida will uh, uh, add to that that list. That was a pretty good list, but yes, Shahida, is there anything either from the kind of you know history before your time or from your sort of working career that just sort of stands out to you? I, I think Alan has obviously given quite a comprehensive list of you know some of the real immediate changes that we've seen and discoveries. The one I was thinking, of, and this is maybe stealing Alan's thunder, who's a nutritionist specialist, is understanding that we can actually feed people even when the gut is failing I think it's a pretty remarkable discovery and change you know you can feed people through other ways um, using uh, what we call central lines or very thin tubes into blood vessels and that's able to give people lots of um, additional years of life you know um, which wouldn't have been possible before and the reason we can do that is because we have these additional techniques that are very sterile and we can provide that and we wouldn't have been able to do that you know without working together as a huge team so the number of people that are involved in bringing that process to life every single day is massive and it's sometimes we take for so grant you know we take it for granted but when alan's on holiday we're actually all got the fear in us because we've no idea what to do Good. How does your ego feel, Alan, in this moment? Oh, I'll, I'll not get my head out of the door now. <laughs> so we've talked about the past. So another thing I like, and this is kind of a horrible question as well, but I'm keen to ask you guys, what do you think will happen in the future? So what does the future of gastroenterology look like? Chida, in, in 10, 20, 30 years, what do you think will be the big changes or, or developments in your specialty? I think the biggest change we are going to see in the future, and I've touched on this just previously, is about the microbiome. So that's the collection of microorganisms that we have in our gut. And I think we're going to find a real understanding of how they can change both in health and disease and how they are essentially impacted by everything that we do. So, you know, for example, what we're like um, when we're in our, you know, at the time of birth, you know, what medications we take as we grow up, how the environment influences us, the food that we eat, the stresses that we experience, I think, you know, have a huge impact on our microbiome. And I think as we begin to sort of understand how that changes, we then begin to understand how it changes in disease and then can start to modulate that. I think there's a real concern that some of the medications that we use you know, have an effect at some point and then lose effect. So you want a treatment or a therapy that's going to be sustainable long-term. And I think one of that will come from the lifestyle changes that we will undertake. And that includes things like, you know, eating more healthily where possible, avoiding processed food, understanding how quality of sleep and rest is really important for everybody. 
and how that manifests as becoming a really wholesome individual. Thank you very much. So, Alan, you know, is, is that the feature that you see as well? Is there, are there any other kind of developments or changes? I, no, I, I think that's a, a, a very um, valid point, and, and it's a, an enormous uh, uh, area for, for research at the moment. Um, th there's no doubt at all that uh, if you look at populations in, in areas of the world where they are beginning to adopt uh, what you might call a Western diet. Um, you see this uh, this enormous growth in all sorts of diseases. Um, and from the point of view of gastroenterology, one of the, the most interesting things is that inflammatory bowel disease is uh, uh, it, it just takes off as the uh, as the urbanization of the population uh, uh, takes root uh, in in, uh, in various areas and all the, the, the changes in, in uh, sort of lifestyle and diet that go along with that. Um, I, I think you are what you eat and uh, we don't necessarily eat uh, the right things uh, in 2022. If I could also just mention that the changes that I've seen, which I think will continue to happen, and, and those are changes in the workforce itself, the, the, the gastroenterology workforce. And one of the biggest changes is um, um, bald old men like me are, uh, are, are becoming a minority and, and we have many more female colleagues. Um, and that's, that, that's a, a trend that began some years ago and, and will just continue. It's, you've only to look at medical school, uh, GI trainees and, and then um, you know, GI departments across the country. And I think that's a, a fantastic uh, uh, development where we see um, not, not just more female colleagues, but, but uh, more flexible working and probably a more sympathetic um, uh, outlook on, uh, on care as a, as a whole. Um, I, I think that's, uh, that's something that will continue to happen. Um, at least I hope it does. That was that was the perfect link for me into what I'm going to ask you next, because you're talking about, you know, the, the changing workforce. Um, and part of our audience might well be people who are studying medicine, who are thinking about how to specialise, or even people who are school students who are thinking about going to university to, to study medicine. So I'm interested to get your perspective on what they can do if they are thinking about going into gastroenterology. You know, how do they prepare for this world and what skills are particularly useful to have in a kind of budding gastroenterologist, do you think? I, I uh, well, my, my advice would be to, to, to come along and, and try it out, you know, to, uh, to come and speak to people. Um, uh, if, if you're, now obviously that's difficult if you're at school, um, but if you're a medical student, um, come and speak to us, come and see us, get, get involved in what we do, get involved in research projects or clinical audit projects, um, come along to the ward, help out on the ward, come down to endoscopy, but, but speak to people and make yourself known. Um, Enthusiasm, I, I think, is a very effective uh, and, and very attractive quality. And um, again, as a bald old man, I, I did Latin at school, and um, the, the, the word for enthusiasm in Latin is, is the same word as the word for study. So, you, you know, the, the things you study uh, are the things that, that you show enthusiasm for. So cultivate that enthusiasm, uh, but, but come and speak to us. Thank you very much. Is there anything that you would add to that, Shahida? 
I think it's partly our responsibility to perhaps go as well and share, you know, what we do and how exciting it is for us. And, you know, this podcast that we're doing today will be part of that and just giving people an experience, um, you know, of what perhaps medicine in general or a career in medicine can offer you. And at the minute, there's lots of coverage on the media about that, um, as well as watching people in the jungle. You can watch people in ambulances and in A&Es and in GP practices. So there's a fantastic availability, you know, around now that's been um, really capitalised by the pandemic, where you can actually have a real experience, you know, both from the media um, and generally from Twitter, etc., other social media platforms, and learn what medicine can offer you. Um, gastroenterology is obviously the best specialty. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, and you know, it's also, as I say, our, respons- our responsibility to go and encourage people to come and meet us. So this is, I want to ask you what is my favourite question because I, I'm really interested in, in history in general and, and particularly the history of, of gastroenterology. So imagine I get permission to set up my dream museum, which has in it an object from every single specialty that sort of summarises or, or shows something really important about that specialty. What would the object for gastroenterology be? Shahida. Can we have one each? Yes. Right. So I think the object for gastroenterology will be poo. I think it's fascinating. Just a jar of poo. Yeah. And I think if you delve into that poo, it will tell you so much about that individual, about what's happening within their gut at the minute, what they've eaten or taken for medications the day before. Um, It's just that we're not there with the technology to actually decipher all that information that's in there. That's really interesting. And actually, I was talking not as part of this podcast series, but I was talking to a paleontologist who said people think that all they do is study dinosaurs. But actually what they do is they study the poo because that's what tells you about the environment, the temperature, the food, everything. It's not about the T-Rex. It's about the poo. So, yeah, it always comes back to that, it turns out. Um, So, Alan, we've got the poo. What's the other object? What would you pick? I'd probably have to choose an endoscope of some description. Um, probably a colonoscope. Thank you, just to balance it out. Yes, yes. Um, If I I were allowed two things, I I might go really historical and go back to another way of accessing the the, the small bowel mucosa and taking uh, uh, taking, uh, tissue samples, uh, which is something called a, a Watson or Crosby capsule. Um, which people used to have to swallow, and then uh, th- there would be a, a period during which it would make its way through the stomach and down into the, the small bowel, um, and then using a, a kind of uh, a suction device, uh, the, the, the operator would be able to take a, a blind biopsy. But it would take all day for this to happen, um, and I think fairly frequently uh, that the biopsy was either not there at all or, or insufficient. So um, I think it's just a, an illustration of how things have moved on, uh, even in the space of, I think the last uh, Crosby capsule that was done at the Western was done in the early 90s, just, just before I arrived. So um, it's something that uh, was a big thing at the time, but completely gone now. Um, and I dare say my colonoscope, uh, which I think is a big thing now, might be gone in 30 years, something better come along. So we're coming towards the end now, and I'm afraid it's on a bit of a, a doer note because 
we are talking in March 2022, and we can't avoid the subject of the coronavirus pandemic. So I'm curious to know, in terms of your specialty, how has this impacted on your work? And do you think it will have a long-term impact as well and change the way that you do things? Um, Alan? It had an enormous impact, as, as I think it did across the board. Um, from our particular perspective, um, I think uh, the fact that we stopped doing endoscopy for, uh, for some months because there were concerns about it being an aerosol generating uh, uh, procedure and therefore concerns about spreading COVID just, just through doing the, the test itself. That, that um, really uh, made a, a, a huge uh, dent in, uh, in, in our waiting times and our ability to, uh, to investigate people and to, to, to maintain and, and survey people. Um, so the legacy of that is still ongoing and uh, there are thousands of people uh, around the country, uh, tens of thousands around the UK uh, and goodness knows how many across the world who, uh, who are now uh, waiting for their, their test that, that was delayed because of all of this. Um, so that was one major impact. And I think waiting lists in general in countries who had waiting lists have been you know, hugely hit. And, and we were quite lucky. We were able to continue doing quite a lot of things over the telephone or uh, through video links uh, and video consultations. But um, I think that that separation from, from our patients has been quite, uh, quite, quite difficult. Thank you very much. So we're, we're coming to, to the end now, but before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask, is there anything else you would like people to walk away with, you know, knowing about your specialty? Or is there anything that I've missed out or moved past too quickly that you'd like to have the opportunity to say? It's the best job in the world. And it's not all about poo. You wouldn't know it, but anyway, yes, um, Shahida. I think I was going to say it is the best job in the world, but actually it's the people that I work with that make the best job and the patients that I care for. And that's what makes it a great specialty is that you're never expected to know everything and there's always somebody to ask. Fantastic. Well, this has been really fascinating and really enjoyable. So, so thank you both for, for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you. In our historical case study today, we're going to look at the story of a man who was both patient and practitioner, Dr George Cheney. Cheney was a popular 18th century Scottish physician. Much of the most successful portion of his career he spent first in London and then in the English town of Bath, where many wealthy individuals either lived or holidayed, and Cheney's patient list was one of the most exclusive. It was not uncommon for successful doctors to suffer from conditions such as gout in the 18th century. Cheney blamed overindulgence as the cause of gout and wrote that, quote, It is diet alone, proper and specific diet, which is the sole universal remedy. Like many physicians in the 18th century, Cheney toured coffee houses, taverns, drawing rooms, and dining rooms in search of clients. Cheney was, at his heaviest, 32 stone. The menu which survives from one of the dinners he attended at the home of Lady Betty Hastings in the 1720s included almond soup, boiled pike, battered rabbit, calf's foot pie, a breast of veal, tongue, goose, chicken, sheep, gravy soup 
and salmon. That's not even considering alcohol and desserts. The only vegetable served at this meal was a side dish of cabbage. At one point, Cheney was using a sedan chair to travel even the shortest of distances, such as the end of the street, so his exercise was almost non-existent. Cheney, however, later became vegetarian and, according to himself, followed an exceptionally strict diet, which included not above three pints of wine on any day. The poet Alexander Pope described Cheney in 1739 in a letter to a mutual friend. Pope stated that he, Cheney, had, quote, extreme rotundity of the belly and shortness of stature, so Cheney was almost the same height when he lay on his back as when he stood on his legs. In 1724, Cheney had written an essay on health and long life. In this book, he described his diet and stated that, quote, I no longer crash sedan chairs. Cheney argued that his weight gain was not due to lack of exercise or too much food and drink. It is an urban problem, which happened when he moved to London and became involved in, quote, sensual pleasures and jollity. So he decided that he must retire to the country in order to be cured. Cheney was able to cure himself by remaining an outsider to the vices of the urban world. Throughout his life, he blamed cities and the urban environment, not himself. It was a case, Cheney argued, of natural versus unnatural man, of the natural rural life or the unnatural urban one. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at RCPE Heritage, and we have a Just Giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.